Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lee's here with another exciting episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. Super excited to speak uh, to this woman who has an amazing career, um, amazing stories to tell. So please welcome uh, the former VP of Sales, which we'll get into, of Eventbrite, literally a household name, Chloe Stewart. So welcome aboard and thanks for coming along. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. I, I, I feel really grateful to be here. So thanks for thinking of me. Hopefully I won't bore you and your listeners too much, maybe just a little. No, I hope not. I hope not. So, so the obvious question, right? Seven years at Eventbrite. Um, where was it when you started? Where is it now that you've left? Yes. When I started at Eventbrite, the team that I was responsible for was a total of about 15 reps that was comprised of both SDRs and AEs, verticalized, and all in San Francisco. And by the time that I uh, moved away from my responsibility over that same team, we had um, about 20 SDRs, about um, an additional 25 AEs, um, six sales leaders, majority of which we moved to our Nashville Center of Excellence location for inside sales, and then had in-market enterprise reps. Um, so drastic changes over the, the course of time there. Um, with COVID and seeing that public gatherings are basically illegal right now, and seeing that that's how Eventbrite makes money, the sales team does look, I think, pretty different um, globally at this point. Um, the business made the decision to sort of reshift and focus more on the self-service customer acquisition channel that Eventbrite is also um, very, very well known for and excels at, um, and sort of moving away from um, the sales motion. Again, for good reason, since what um, they do is, um, you know, not really legal right now, so. What, what, is, what was the company size overall in terms of just of employees? Like where was it, yeah. where did it go in that time? I was, absolutely, I think I was around the 200th employee when I came on board in um, early 2013, and um, I think 1,500 total employees um, earlier this year, and then with um, the downsizing, uh, you know, that's pre-April, I should say. But yeah, so some some pretty uh, wild growth, and um, the business also grew globally. So um, when I started in 2013, there were definitely some offices across the globe. Um, but um, we had opened um, Melbourne, Australia. We had some folks in Singapore, New Zealand, um, a great Latin American headquarters in um, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, and then uh, similarly opened a center of excellence for sales in Cork, Ireland. And, um, you know, sort of re revamping the European strategy to mirror what we were doing in North America. So really exciting growth, not just in terms of headcount, but also in terms of kind of the global reach um, and the, the, the market expansion. What did, what did you do to manage all the different time zones that you were operating? Yeah, so that was fun. Um, I think by the, the approach that Eventbrite took when it came to sales and more of the customer facing roles was uh, definitely sort of have um, the market direct and drive that strategy. So sort of looking at each office, we really tried to disrupt the idea that San Francisco was headquarters. Like it just, just wanted to change that, even if it was philosophically so that um, leaders and folks working in other offices like really did feel like they had the autonomy to make their own decisions that of course um, played the best within their um, unique markets with their unique customers. So um, with that all said and done, like there was that autonomy there, which was really nice. When I took on the global role um, in 2019, it was challenging um, to say the least for managing time zones, but you just learn to like 
pay calls at, you know, three in the morning and, you know, work late. And then also, um, I think everyone is really uh, considerate and knows that they have to do the same thing and we have to do the same thing. So let's try to um, try to cooperate and, and be flexible there. But yeah, a lot of just like weird time zones. I think a lot of people might hear this and, and say, well, how do you do that over a extended period of time? Like it can't be sustainable for you to take calls at eight o'clock in the morning Pacific and 3 a.m. Pacific and all this, this kind of stuff is, I mean, how frequent were those calls? Was there any tips and tricks that you, that you could give people managing a global team or even a domestic team that has three or four different time zones um, just to make your life a little more normal, a little more sane, a little yeah. less broken up and, and interrupted in the middle of the night? Is there anything, or is there anything totally. that worked or is this just like, the law of the land, the way it is when you have a global team? I think that there's definitely some best practices around understanding what are the sort of more primary time zones. So for example, like poor Australia, poor Melbourne, like they definitely had to be a little bit more flexible than say Europe and North America um, and, and uh, Latin America as well, just because like, I mean, they just have a fucking crazy time zone comparatively speaking. So, you know, they had to be a little bit more flexible than others. So what one best practice, of course, is to ensure that you're staggering your pipeline meetings or your revenue war room meetings, et cetera, um, on a certain cadence. So one might be early, one might be late, one might be midday. So like everyone, at least one, at, you know, for one of those three in the cadence, think is going to be a little screwed um, and just sort of like have that balance so it feels equitable and a little bit uh, fair. From my perspective, I think it also matters to like, what is your strategy? So um, my role as the VP of Global Sales was a little bit untraditional in the sense that I didn't have direct um, management over the global team. It was almost more akin to being a consultant, like that's how I compared it, um, where I was responsible for influencing the performances of those teams, but the GMs in each market were actually my peers. And so with that all said and done, I had to really understand like what is my what are the outcomes I'm trying to drive through my strategy and part of that to start was oper oper um, operationalizing and getting the teams to just like be these well-oiled machines. So I say that because I think once you understand what your sort of remit is um, in your role then you might have late nights and, and early mornings to start but once you get those teams to operate how they should be then you can kind of get a longer leash right and you're just you 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 are spending time with the leaders to know, make sure that they're driving consistent performance. They're doing things like um, providing information to you in a proactive way, not to like micro or to create more like admin work, but like they're serving up the right level of information so that again, they can operate a little bit more autonomously um, and they don't need me or anyone else in their business 24 seven. And when we considered Nashville as almost our center of excellence, um, in the sense that those were definitely the inside sales motion, as well as our like more technical client services or customer success teams were there too. Um, and our strategic relationship managers were just, you know, were more on the enterprise side and in market as well. Um, so yeah, and I call it center of excellence because it's meant to be like highly programmatic, 
um, you know, a repeatable and scalable motion, obviously, but one that just like, once you get those operating rhythms in place, like you just press go and they should go. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be like really strong frontline managers coaching, coaching, coaching and doing that stuff, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So again, when I uh, started at Eventbrite and began to, to manage the team that I was responsible for, um, most of my time in that role was uh, North American acquisition. And then, of course, I was in that role for a little over six years. So like definitely evolved in some changes here and there with, with who I was responsible for. But we only had that team really focused on two different verticals, like B2B and B2C, just for the, the sake of, um, of, of being convenient with language here. Um, but what we were beginning to realize is that with the business strategy and with the overall go-to-market strategy, what does the ideal customer profile, of course, really look like? And how are we creating a team that not only is targeting that to be effective and efficient, but that we're actually having a team, like a process and our methodology to be totally tight and in line with the buyer's journey. And so I think just taking a step back and strategically looking at how can sales as an acquisition channel and as a retention channel, of course, um, align to the business strategy overall and then sort of work backwards to create the process that is going to help reach those, those outcomes. Yeah. Totally. I think uh, an example of that would be segmenting the North American team um, into four. So we had SMB, mid-market, large accounts, and enterprise. And Eventbrite defined that a little bit differently than traditional. It was more around the like average contract value versus like employee number at those businesses. That sort of segmentation strategy came out of like really understanding where can we uh, make the most impact in either the shortest amount of time, so hence SMB and mid-market, and where is there going to be a little bit more of like go-to-market experimentation and obviously like bigger, you know, more wallet share and dollar signs with large accounts and enterprise. And building out those four segments um, took six years to do. One thing that we learned with experimentation, Richard, to, to answer that question is that um, the business decided to uh, we had like an incubation team, for instance, where we were either developing proprietary solutions or through acquisition had other solutions to sell um, in addition to Eventbrite's core solution. So we decided to let's build this enterprise motion, build this enterprise team. It was super exciting. It took us like a year and a half to like just even get the infrastructure in place. Well, the business decided that that wasn't the direction that we wanted to go. So we had to pull back. Um, that team was, I think, six or seven reps. And we ended up scaling that back to two because we decided that we wanted to move, again, more in that transactional, like, just ticket volume play versus um, more of a, a solution sell. And so that experimentation was um, both defined by what the business's direction looked like. But in addition to that, and as a salesperson, like for me, almost more importantly, what do customers want to buy? Because that's what's going to help, like, help them reach their goals or mitigate their pains. Um, and so that was a constant conversation within the business. Um, one where, you know, a product driven company is like, 
but what we want to do from a product perspective and from a sales view, this is what we know our customers want. And sort of taking those to that, like sometimes it can be a little bit of a conflict, but taking that as our framework to then understand how do you set up teams that can accomplish all of that. But then also, and I'll stop talking into this, but then also being um, less precious and knowing how much time do you spend understanding if that's an effective strategy or not, and when are you able to pull back? Um, and we had plenty of, 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 of moments where we realized that we either pulled back too soon, like for example, we sunsetted SMB and we should not have, um, and when do we maybe invest too much like an enterprise um, versus uh, working more in the mid-market. I'm gonna read your job titles off at Eventbrite because I want people to, to understand this journey and then I'm gonna ask you about it. So here they go. And if I screw this up, feel free to interrupt me, but account executive, sales team lead, sales manager, North America, enterprise sales manager, North America, director, North American sales, senior director, North American sales, VP, global sales. This reads like, somebody's dream of a, a career growth of like um like like you build into a comp plan right like this is how somebody keeps moving up when you started as an account executive there was it even anywhere on your radar at all that you wanted to be a vp of sales one day let alone at that company that you started at Oh, hell no, 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 no. Um, I still don't know if I want to be a VP of sales, to be honest. Um, I wanted to move into management. Like that was definitely uh, a goal of mine, but not so, not so much for like the quote or the like, hey, I'm more senior, more for the impact you can have as a coach and working in other businesses where one of which coaching was hyper important and seeing the impact of that and then working in another business where coaching was a little less important and seeing like the negative impact of that like that's where i knew i wanted to it, for me for what i understood management seemed like the venue to do that i didn't really know more um but yeah staying at eventbrite for seven plus years like that was never in my purview that was never something i thought about um i'm definitely a bit of a serial monogamous when it comes to work it might be like my midwesternism but like seven plus years in the valley is can also be a disadvantage and be, you know, sort of like oh, yeah. not a, a good look here and there. So definitely not something that I had thought out to do. So it's interesting to hear you say that you're not sure if you want to be a VP of sales now. Can, can you elaborate on that? Is there something that makes you feel that way? Is there, is there some part of the, the role that you're just not sure of yet? Or is your passion starting to go in a different direction? Great questions. Um, I was maybe being a little tongue in cheek there. I, 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 right now, I am exploring that role in uh, for for future opportunities. So that's where I want to be. I think what I'm seeing, um, and working in tech and like continuing to work in tech is that. Um, I mean, you guys know, like it's lonely sometimes. Like the VP of sales plus position, um, especially in product driven businesses or tech tech companies, like you're a bit of the black sheep and not just, I mean, like I'm tattooed and whatever, I'm weird. So like, that, that's fine for me, but like, it can be a continued challenge to educate the business over and over on like why sales is important and what sales does and why sales can't turn your business around overnight. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, you don't have that same peer group that I think other VP roles in different business units or departments have. Um, and so it's, it can be a challenge. It just, it's, it's, the job can be harder for that. Yeah, I agree with 95% of what you said. I think that the peer group 
is out there now in a way that didn't used to be out there. And I think you get put forth a little bit of effort, but there's a lot more people like myself and, and I don't want to name any other names, but people are kind of speaking out against the, the system, so to speak, right? Like neither one of us, I would argue at least, neither one of us, you or I, fit the prototype of like a VP of sales, right? You're, you're a woman leading sales organization. Your arms are all tattooed up, as you said. I look like a homeless person. I dress the way I did in high school still today, right? Like we don't, we don't fit the bill, but this is us like, we have assaulted the system in, in some way, which I love. Yeah. The, the, like the rebel in me is all, is all about that. But the peer group is there. Like there's a lot of us who've been through the ringer here now, more than once. Yeah. And, you know, kind of lean on each other for support and whatnot, because you're right, it is super lonely. We are the first ones who are going to get fired mm-hmm. if anything goes wrong every single time. We constantly have to justify our existence to people who built these products. And then we constantly have to explain to them how sales works. I, I, I totally get it. And you've, you've got to decide whether or not you, know, you want to sign up for that. But you don't have to go through it alone. You've got to just go out there and network with everybody who's been in that role a few times and lean on folks you know, for support. So I think if you do go down that path, this is something that you, know, you might want to work on exploring because you've been at one company yeah. for seven and a half years, right? So you've got this arguably kind of myopic view of what it's like to be a VP of sales out there, whereas I'm the opposite. Like your stint at Eventbrite, that's three gigs for me. Yeah. That's three times that I've scaled from zero to 25. Not to say that one is better than the other, just very different and and gives perhaps a different perspective. A thousand percent. And I think what I have been already learning so much more of after leaving Eventbrite in April is like from, you know, guys like you, um, both of you, where there is this network. And so really, like I think for me, understanding the network outside of your um, particular role, like your business, like how do you do that? And to be, and it's um, in the past, it's been a turnoff to do networking and sales because I'm also, which like maybe like you guys can both relate to some extent, um, sales was not something that I had ever thought I was going to land in either. And so I think that I am still fighting a perception of like, oh, sales. You know, despite the fact that like my entire career after graduate school has been in sales and my entire career, I am assuming until I retire, will most likely be in sales either explicitly or implicitly, right? Um, and so I'm still trying to get over my bias, I think, of like networking with, like having to go to like drink craft brews with some bros. Like that does not, that's not how I want to spend my time. That sounds awful, um, but that's not how I want to spend my time. But I'm learning through like you guys and what you're doing that that's, there are other people who are like-minded and if you're not that's fine too i need to learn from other perspectives obviously um who are doing things in sales that are really meaningful and that's how i can find mentorship too um i think it's been interesting not to like segue um but i'm going to um mentorship is something that's been top of mind for me after uh ending my career at eventbrite and realizing that this is not meant to sound super cocky but it's kind of cocky the mentors that i had i may have outgrown and so how do I find, you know, meaningful mentorship and also find a community 
um, within sales overall that might not be within my, like the company that I'm working for. So that's like, that, I just repeated what you said like in 18 different ways. Sorry about that. Um, I'm a salesperson, but that's totally, I feel you and I, I totally I love that agree with you. you out, I love that you outgrew your mentors, but that, that to me is also the, a good sign of a mentor is to say, I'm supposed to get you from here to here, right? You know, look, yeah. unless you can get, you know, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or, you know, something of that level to be your mentor, you know, and even then you could outgrow them because of their myopic view of their world, right? They don't yeah. remember, you know, do the day to day. But this actually br brings me back to something. So in 2013, 2014, you're, you're growing, you're in your sales job. Where did you go for advice? Did Eventbrite have a, a strong internal component to help with that? Obviously, you're a woman in sales growing up in 2013, 2014. You know, how did you, how did you navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things. The, the first boss that I had when I begrudgingly found myself in a sales role, my first sales role, um, was and continues to be probably one of the best salespeople I've ever worked for and worked with. Um, and she was so different than me in the sense that she just was seemingly fearless. And the things that would embarrass me, like, well, if I ask someone for something and they say no, like, that's humiliating. And she was like, yeah, Chloe, if they say no, they say no. Like, that's what? Like, what? How is then you move on like she just like couldn't understand that and so I learned so much from her in terms of just like psychology and sales how to be like an incredible outbounder how to be strategic but also how to ensure that you are creating long-term solutions for your customers so they want to be your partner over and over but also pushing back when they're not right so I just she was just a gift and also I had never done sales in that capacity before so she was somebody who I just learned I still reference things that Jamie Chadwell taught me back in like 2006 2007 additionally when I was at Eventbrite I was also hired by a woman um, Nicole Brambila who is the GM of North America and she's brilliant um, and she became um, a really strong peer of mine in, this, in a to some extent too so I need to learn a lot from her but she brought me in in a different way where it was more like an equal level of respect and she just assumed that I would know how to do it and, and would do it and she's the one who really helped like kickstart my career at these right so I owe her a lot um, and so as a partner almost like as like um, like if she and I were founders of a company like she I felt like we had that relationship and that was really brilliant Additionally, there was um, our former CRO at Eventbrite, who now is the CRO of Compass, uh, Matt Rosenberg, is somebody else who I continue to go to um, to learn more and to um, just get other perspectives. Just probably one of the brilliant people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And um, I took the job at Eventbrite, like in large part because of Matt. Um, and he's somebody who, despite being CRO of this, you know, super, super, um, you know, successful business, he has time for everyone. And that was something that I learned too. So I still have this amazing network of folks that I've learned from and learned, continue to learn from. But I think what I'm missing is um, those alternate perspectives that are coming from outside of the business. So Eventbrite, to, again, long-winded answer your question, Richard, Eventbrite gave me lots of these opportunities to learn from people and to um, get that coaching and get that mentorship but i haven't really explored outside of those walls and that is like a massive myth on my part you know how did you, how did you get into sales it looks i mean you studied did gender studies in school and and got your master's in that and you're a graduate teaching assistant like i remember I, I taught i was in graduate school at arizona state and i was teaching undergraduate classes and 
then disaster happens to me and years later I end up in sales. I'm wondering how did you go from master's program, graduate teaching assistant, and now Chloe's in sales? How did that happen? Yeah, totally. Um, my plan was to continue my education and to get my PhD and to be teaching at the university level. That was like my big plan. Um, but two things really happened. One, I finished graduate school and holy shit, is that expensive? So I graduated and was like, oh man, I don't have any money. I was like a research assistant, right? Like I was in a TA, like I was making that and had loans or whatever. And the first job that hired me out of grad school was that's a sales role at Learn It. Um, and did I, I thought that was going to be temporary. I thought that was a way for me to like pay my rent and pay off some of my debt um, while I, you know, started to apply for, um, for um, PhD programs. So that didn't happen because then suddenly 2007 turned around the corner and the university was like one of the first major institutions to get hit by um well what became the recession obviously in 2008 um and the first programs that were beginning to lose funding and pause tenure tracking were the programs that i cared about so gender studies cultural studies um anything like that that had a little more of like a social political slant to it that's what i wanted to do and i saw that like oh shit <laughs> okay something's happening here so I stuck around my sales job for a little bit longer, and then the true recession hit in 2008, and that was pretty eye-opening for me. And what I found out while my plan for my future was just sort of scrapped in that sense, I ended up being really good at sales, which yeah. was like horrifying. Like that was a horrifying moment to, to like realize, and I really actually liked it, which was hard to admit to. But what, but why did you even apply the first time? Like what, how did, how did that happen? I mean, for, for me, it was like similar in, in the sense of, um, holy cow, I need to somehow live in the Bay Area and it's really expensive here. And the only yeah. thing I could think of to make money and lots of it is sales. So it was yeah. totally strategic. I, I knew nothing about sales. I knew nothing about business. Was it, was it a strictly like monetary, monetarily driven decision for you? It was, it was, and it wasn't even like you took it, you were like way smarter than I was where you were like, how can I make like decent money potentially? I was like, how do I just get this negative sign away from my checking account and my, my bank balance, you know? And I applied to a lot of jobs on Craigslist, oh, OG Craigslist, and the first job offer that I got was this sales role. Um, and that, I mean, like, it's, it's just that story, like that's how I tumbled into it. What I like about that story and what I like about your story, Scott, and like Richard, I'd be interested in hearing from you too, is that one of the things that I think is really important about sales is that it is at least theoretically really democratic. Um, I consider it like the running of sports. Like if you can physically run, you don't need equipment or a gym membership. Like you just can go outside or go inside and like run. Like that to me is so democratic. With sales, I was this overeducated broke grad student but i had never cold called in my life like i had sold at like the grocery store co-op that i used to work at like i had done that but i had never sold in the sense that this business was asking me to sell and yet i could i also have the privilege to do that right like i like and it's easy i had access to it where i know a lot of folks don't have access so that's why i say it's theoretically democratic but with sales you can start as a bdr or an sdr whether you're just finishing school or if later on in your career you want to pivot there's just like 
a less of a barrier to entry to a sales career than I think some other um, types of roles have. And I love that about sales. I think that that's like a really scrappy sort of democratic piece of it. Um, and that's what helped me get this job. I had zero experience and then was sort of the, the gateway drug into my long career now in sales. Yeah, I can, I can relate to your story a ton because <clears throat> I love that you just call it the gateway drug. I mean, I remember, I remember closing my first deal and thinking, Ooh, that was amazing. I want that. I want that to happen again. And on some level, I've been like addicted to that yeah. feeling for 16 plus years now and I'm just consistently chasing the dragon, trying to get more, more totally. and all that. Yeah, yeah. When, um, you, when, you, when you were growing up, Chloe, were you competitive? Were you into sports, not into sports? Were you, you know, what, what were you like then? No, no. And like, I, like exercising has like saved my brain during uh, quarantine, which like, like, oh yeah, who knew that like everything people have said about exercising is like totally true. Like you feel really good and it's like fun to like spend time doing that and whatever. So no, like I was the kid growing up who hated sports. Um, I was the punk rock kid. Like I liked, you know, art and I liked reading books and I liked um, when I got older seeing bands play and, and stuff like that. And collecting records I have tons of records because that's so easy to move why I do that I don't know and sports to me was like not just like did I not want to do it because I also am kind of inherently lazy um it just wasn't like the, the the jock culture wasn't something that I was interested in I also was pretty shy um and so that made sales weird too for me like the idea of having to call strangers felt really hard and like when I started I had that first job which again I was driven to accept because I was broke um that would just like make me so nervous and keep me up at night but through like the mentorship of my first boss like realizing like if you know your buyer persona and you know your target categories like and you know that you're actually helping provide a solution that will help them like it's not scary like I had to really like really change that so that was tough and now to your point like Scott like closing deals like there is nothing that feels better than like doing something like that it's just it's so fun so what what if we were to ask your parents what they think of you having a career in sales they shocked by it they like what are you doing or I mean granted they've probably grown accustomed to it and they're proud of all that you've accomplished right like, like we get that but you know, what do you think their opinion uh, was when you first started this sales as a potential career as opposed to just paying off the debt? I don't know if they saw it as a potential career for me versus like that stepping stone to like make some money and um, get back into school. Um, do they, and so I think do they see it as a career now or still not? Yeah, I think that they're shocked. Like when I um, started to move up at Eventbrite in particular, like my my, and my parents own, they're small business owners. They, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They own a, my brother now own, like, take, has taken it over. They own a small chemical production plant where they make cleaning products for like breweries. Like there's nothing more Milwaukee than that, right? So like they have business acumen. They also inherited that business through my grandparents suddenly and they didn't expect to do that either. So like we have a similar story of like, we kind of fell into something and then lo and behold, it like just becomes your life. I think once I started to like move my way up and they saw that I was, pretty fucking good at what I do then they're like all right like proud of me and excited for me to do that um because I just my family has never done stuff like this you know like I, my my parents didn't finish college um they're my brother didn't finish college like that kind of stuff you know where that this just felt different 
And once I started to like, again, show progress there, then they were like, okay, good for you. But initially I think they were like, Ooh, <laughs> no, you're going to be a professor. Like, what are you doing? So. Yeah. I think my parents still are confused. I'm in <laughs> sales. And my mom to this day will still say, you've been such a good lawyer, Scott. You're so good at yeah. arguing things. Because, you know, oh, I love that. Being a, being a VP of sales is lesser than being a lawyer, right? <laughs> yes. It's so funny you say that. When I was um, like in, I think I was at Eventbrite already, but I wasn't where I ended at Eventbrite. My dad also was like, you should really go to law school. Like, why are you not a lawyer? And he's like, and you can do things within, you know, like you can work for like disenfranchised people, right? Like you don't have to be like a big like you know corporate lawyer or whatever he, but he was really into that too that's so funny so as you you know so you're you're coming into a different place right with your career i know a lot of a lot of people of your stature not necessarily the tenure at one company but very experienced and you're in this very unique weird world situation right um and I, I know we've talked offline you, you've been given the luxury to have some runway and time to sort of figure out your next move what kind of advice would you give to someone who's trying to figure out their next move? And I know you're still figuring it out. You're still on that journey, but yeah. what have you learned? Uh, I know you talked about the networking piece, but what else have you learned about this journey that you're on now? Great question. Um, and, and yeah, just to reiterate what you said, like I am incredibly fortunate. Um, I'm very privileged. And so I luckily not luck. I mean, it's privilege. I have, some savings. So I'm able to have the luxury of taking my time, which is just like, is so lucky. Um, a lot of people can't. A lot of people who were at Eventbrite and who um, lost their jobs in the reduction had to find jobs the next day, right? Um, and so that adds a layer of stress that I haven't had to experience. Um, so I get to be maybe more thoughtful with it because I just get to be, you know, it's not like I am more thoughtful. I just, I just get to be. Um, I think what's so interesting right now is and everyone knows this, there are very few options. Like there is just, it's just not the, the market that it was in, you know, end of February. And so learning right now, there's two things to it that I'm trying to understand. Trying to figure out like what is going to be viable in the world, whatever the world looks like as we come out of this. And not even when we're out because like not to get political, but um, we're going to be in this for a while, it looks like. Um, so through the phasing of, um, you know, at least this country reopening, like what does that mean for buyer behavior? Like what do consumers, like what are they going to want to buy and when and, and how? And from a B2B perspective, like what are businesses going to offer from a product and service perspective that is actually going to be sustainable, right? And I don't know those answers. And that's been really fucking hard because I'm a bit of a control freak and I like feeling like I'm measured in all of that. And so this is requiring a bit of more experimentation and um, like forcing myself to be okay with like maybe not having a job work for seven and a half years. Like that's obviously a, a, a new concept to me. Like how do I take a risk and a chance in a way that feels thoughtful and like um, intentional, but know that it might shit the bed like three months down the road and be okay with that and not let that um, potential failure, quote unquote, keep me from, from taking that risk or taking that on. So that's something that I think what I've, this just isn't, 
it, it just is such a different environment to find a job. This is so different than 2008, right? Like this is, this is, we haven't experienced anything like this before. And so not knowing the answers has been really tough and I have to be okay with that. So that's one thing. Then the other thing is, again, there's just not so many options out there. So what are some of those, like the core things that you absolutely need in a role, even if like, let's say the product isn't in the space that you really care about, right? Like, let's say you're like, oh God, another fucking collaboration software opportunity. Like, oh, like I'm so over it. But if that's what you're seeing and you need to get a job, like what do you look for in that business that's actually gonna make that easier for you, for example? Um, if you're an AE or an SDR or, or a CSM, how does that leadership team think about training and coaching and investment in you? Like, how can you use this as a way for you to be better at what you do so that if this ends up not being the business that you want to stay at long term, how do you get the most from them? Um, and I think that coaching piece is so, so crucial and asking lots of questions around that and investment in you is really important. I think really understanding what your role is going to entail and asking questions around like, hey, if you're going to start an enterprise motion and they haven't done that yet like what's your runway like what is um the infrastructure in place to support enterprise deals like do you have an abm plan or is this all cold calling and, and just really digging into those pieces so you know that you can be effective at what you're doing even if it doesn't feel like it's your dream job like how do you make the most of what you're getting and i think that to back into that it's like think of the three things or even the two things that are your non-negotiables that you have to have in order to take that on. And I'm, to be totally transparent, like I'm still trying to figure out like what are my non-negotiables, you know? I think, so this is my first piece of advice is stop overthinking all this shit. Yeah. You're way yeah. overthinking this oh, role right now. you think now. that I do that? I don't, yeah. I don't know why so, you would do that. Uh, stop, stop being a professor, Professor yeah. Coley. Oh God. So. I can't, give, uh, I can't give up the dream. I know, I know. Um, well, let me ask you this question because maybe this will be the advice you need to give yourself. Yeah. You know, you said that, you know, unfortunately, Eventbrite had to to make some changes to people. And I assume those are probably SDRs and AEs and even directors or VPs. Yeah. For those people who don't have the luxury of a runway, what kind of advice are you giving them about the next job to take? Are you telling them to just take it and, you know, make sure you got your, you know, you can cover your rent and your health care and solve the rest later? Like, what advice are you giving to them? in this situation? Because I think there's a lot of listeners who are in that part, in that part yes. too, who'd like some wisdom. Absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing is, if you don't have a financial situation to support you and to bolster you during this time, like you, desperate times call for desperate measures, like get a fucking job and take a job and you can continue to look for other work while you have a job. That's really hard to do. Like it's hard to balance that. Um, don't ever go into a situation that's going to be abusive or that is going to be, you know, like don't do that. Like, I should just like caveat this, like don't take any job that feels like ethically bad for you, morally bad for you, or that like, it's just not good leadership. Like don't do that. But there are plenty of people hiring right now who are really good people and who are doing their best and they want people who will work with them and will do their best as well. So if you can find that and you don't have um, a financial support system in place, like fucking do it. I get it. You know? Um, Chloe, go you take can... your own advice. You have the financial support system. Stop looking for perfect. Right? Yeah. Don't don't yeah. let perfection stand in the way of progress. That's that's true. Oh, perfection not progress. That's one of my my mottos. I mean, oh my God, no progress not perfection. Did I just like you just brought in? Yeah, I did. Shoot. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Man. Do you do you think that it's um, how do I phrase this? 
Do you think it is easier, the same, or more difficult today as a female sales leader trying to land another such gig? I think that it's easier to get more conversations in place because it's trendy right now. It's hot. Um, especially in the Valley, you know, like boards having a mandate to have, you know, a diverse board staff in whatever way, shape or form that means. Like it's definitely, you can have more conversations. I think that what's tricky is that that bias that is so ingrained in people because not because people are bad, it's what we've been trained to do. Like it's all constructed, right? I think getting further along in that process is still a challenge um, in some capacities. Um, so Yes what is and the, no. In that what, is, what, is the, what is the core challenge in your mind that, that we need to overcome in order, in order to make a, a you know, substantive impact and change that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, I, I, it really comes from the top. So, I mean, you guys have probably heard this over and over, especially as of late. Um, you know, like, you need to have a business that actually acts on its principles and doesn't just say those principles because that's how you can begin to really um, tackle and attack implicit bias. Um, and I think part of that is just knowing that you have it, like it's not gonna change overnight, but being aware that your interview and recruiting process is really well thought out and really meaningful and that you have some like checking checks and balances in it so that you your bias is you know, like you can check and balance your own bias here and there. Um, like having a business that's actually like doing the work to make some of those changes, even in something as tactical as an interview process around what questions are you asking when you are reviewing resumes, what are you looking for? When you're looking at um, education, like that sort of stuff, like taking it apart to that level and knowing that people are going to read that or see that or hear that and have, you know, maybe one answer that, or one, um, response that would be different than if somebody who looked just like them would have that kind of stuff you have, and it's hard it's not something you can do overnight like really breaking that down I think what I'm lucky to have is that like in where I'm at in my career and with my network I have a lot of inbound which is like again so lucky if I were you know new to sales um, it's a little bit trickier and I think to your point that you guys both made really beautifully earlier like that network is also somewhere that you should really lean into to help that to help you especially if you're a woman or a person of color um, if you're older and getting into sales for the first time etc you know all those things that just make it more challenging for you yeah. good. what can we do to help you as we wind down the show here we always ask our guests hey how can we help you do you have any questions for us is there anything that you're working on right now or want to you know kind of promote a little bit or, or what can we do to support you i you guys have both already been i mean you're relative strangers to me and you both have been nothing but like just so embracing and um just like so kind not nice but kind and like that it i mean but you're nice too but I, i'll I want to differentiate. Like, I think nice is one thing, but kindness is, is what's really important. Um, I'm known as I, the nice I, one. Scott's known as the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also known as the one who's far kinder. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Um, and really, you both have already just have letting me yammer on at you for an hour. Like, that's a gift. So thank you. Richard, like, your introductions, like, allowing me to attend your training for free. I mean, like, really, you guys are just so fucking great in that sense. And so I don't, like you've already done a lot for me. If you like, you know, find a rad job that's like looking to hire a, a weird 
chick with tattoos, like let me know. But I am good. I think what I would love, which you already do. So I'm telling you something. You're like, yeah, cool. Like we already do this. But like, can you amplify, you know, folks who don't look just like you or who don't have the same backgrounds as you, et cetera. I think that like right now it's so people are actually so in, in capitalize on this moment to do that like it's just going to help help those folks out even more you know what's your do you want to go early stage zero to ten million do you want to go from 50 to like where you know for people who are listening and they're like oh my god i need someone like this you know are you where do you want to put yourself are you still trying to figure that out no i mean so if you had asked me this in february it would have been like series c and d companies you know looking to scale like i wanted to come in and like throw gasoline on something and just light it up not like burn it to the ground but like really optimize and scale where we're at right now in the world i am talking to folks who are in earlier stages and and looking to build um and that's something that i thought for sure i wouldn't want to be doing um but i think that's actually like really an exciting opportunity right now and one that i'm giving more um credence to than i would have in again fab or jan of this year so that doesn't really answer your question because i'm looking at like a lot um of uh, across the board but what I care about is like working for, as a salesperson is working for a company that is truly creating a service or a product that will actually fulfill a tangible need. And that that opportunity of that product or service is, is you know, like there's so much you can do with that. Like building that go-to-market strategy is just so fun. And then having the team around to actually execute on it, there's just nothing better. And so if that means that you're doing that in a really early company, but one that is beginning to get its legs and they're proving, um, you know, their um, efficacy there, like awesome. Or someone who, you know, is a little bit later, um, like C or D, like that also is, is super exciting. So it's where can I come in and like actually make some change and, and, and break some shit. I love that. Awesome. And well, not working for assholes because I also am like an inherent 15 year old and I'm, I'm, I, I can be mouthy. So I have a hard time when people are, are dicks. <laughs> Perfect. I I have tons of these kind of roles all the time. So make sure that we stay in touch. And yeah, if I can be helpful. I'll certainly do my best to to help you find a, a good spot. So thanks for thanks for uh, spending some time with us. It's been fun chatting with you and, and getting to know you. And best of luck uh, in the future. Look forward to following oh. your career. Seriously, thanks, you guys. Like, I, I'm already obsessed with you two, so thanks for, I mean, you might regret it now, but thanks for bringing me into your world. Um, and you're doing amazing shit, so thank you. On, like, behalf of the, the sales force of, you know, the world, thank you. Um, and happy birthday, early birthday, Scott. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Chloe. Thanks, Chloe. Good to chat with you. <laughs> thanks, you guys. Seriously, thanks so much. Take care.